It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. All right. Welcome to Money for Lunch. I am glad that you are here. Um, you know, it's. Uh, I was just chatting with my guest today, Steve Blue, and, and uh and, you know, so we're just talking about the weather, right? I mean, it, I live in Phoenix, so yesterday we had like 100-degree weather. Uh, today we've had a cold front come in, and so it's uh, been keeping things frosty. Uh, expected a high today is like 82 or 85. And, um, you know, every town has its issues, right, its challenges. For us, it's heat. We're incredibly hot for five months out of the year. And, you know, for some people like in Portland, you know, they they have a lot of green, beautiful vegetation, right? Um, they get lots of rain and very little sunlight. Uh, but everybody's got their deal. And here's my point is that we, as humanity, we adapt. Right? What's the uh, uh, what do you call it? The this the, the motto for uh, the Marines, right? Uh, now I have to look it up. Um, Marines adapt; they overcome. That's all I can remember. But uh, it's hold on. I got to look it up because I won't be able to stop thinking about it now. But anyway, I'm glad you're here. We're going to get started here while I uh, I, I look this up. <laughs> um, let's see. Improvise. Thank you. Improvise, adapt, overcome. That is not only the marine motto, but really the motto for us as humans. And today's quote of the day fits nicely into this idea um, the quote of the day, innovation is the new competitive advantage by Julie Sweet. Innovation is the new competitive advantage. Julie Sweet is the uh, person that's credited to. Let's get this party started. Let's get Steve Blue on the show. Steve Blue is an internationally recognized expert in transforming Rust Belt companies into high-tech powerhouses using his proven formula of igniting innovational potential. He's the CEO of Miller Ingenuity, a manufacturer of world-class safety products for the rail industry, dynamic keynote speaker, and a best-selling author. Steve Blue, welcome back to Money for Lunch. Bert, it's great to be with you. How are you today? Man, I'm doing great. Good to have you, you know, here. And, and uh, I'm just, uh, it's always good to have you on the show and, and, uh, catch up with you and see what's going on yeah well you know i learned something new about you today in your uh, opening monologue i didn't realize you were obsessive and compulsive <laughs> otherwise you wouldn't have been looking up that marine slogan <laughs> i am <laughs> a little obsessive and compulsive but you have to be i think a yeah. little obsessive and compulsive um you know obsessive is good and, and compulsive can be good at times of course uh you cannot be, uh, what do you call it, too uh, 
compulsive OCD. because then you know you, you start chasing all the all the shiny objects. But yep. but yep. you have to be obsessive. You have to be uh, willing to buckle down, and no matter what, you have to be willing to to uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, just Persist. go through it, right? Yep. And you uh, gotta. You got to have the uh, fortitude, and you got to have the belief, and you got to have the drive, and you got to just—you know—it's hard to not, hard to know when it's time to stop because the darn thing just isn't going to work, as opposed right. to you know that one more step that would have gotten it to work. That's you know, sort of a juggling act, and, and over time you sort of learn what that is. Absolutely, and, and and this is a very tricky thing because, you know, I'll give you a perfectly good example. Uh, you know, uh, I wrote about Elon Musk, and Elon Musk is trying to launch his SpaceX program. It, it fails not once, not twice, but three times. And that's all the money he had for that program. And he, you know, used his credit, his reputation. He borrowed and begged, and he got enough money to do one more launch. Of course, everybody's telling him, don't do it. This will bankrupt you. You know, this is yeah. you know the, the technology is not is not available for this, and just to give everybody an idea, he's not trying. So, so SpaceX is to launch a spacecraft in space and then bring it back safely to Earth. And unlike the shuttle, which landed like an airplane, this is landing like a rocket, and, and it's landing. Um, Vertically, up and down. So it takes off that way and it lands that way. And to add to the to the situation, the platform is out in the middle of the ocean, so it's bobbing up and down. This isn't, yeah, that's right. you know, it isn't on the ground, nice and stable. And so anyway, he was able to land this thing, and and, and because of that, walked away with a, with a, I think it was like a 1.2 billion dollar contract from NASA. So. Uh, you know, there is that fine line between, do, you know, as you were trying, as you pointed out, that that fine line between taking one more step or one more chance, or realizing this is never going to work. I was wrong, and it's tough to give up on an idea that you think is going to work. Yeah, that's the problem because uh, one of the biggest dangers is uh, falling in love with your own ideas. And that, that that can be a real killer. You just have to – that's why it's good to have some other people around you to kind of give you some sanity checks, not to bring you down or to dissuade you. But, you know, you can fall in love with your idea so badly and so much that you, you're blind to anything but. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. It's crazy. And, and again, I mean, we've seen that with people like Steve Jobs. We've seen it uh, with, you know, a lot of great – individuals that uh you know was it uh what's his name um henry ford for a minute yeah. i said i almost said henry, harrison ford the actor but it's henry ford <laughs> you know and, and he wanted he was the first person that came up with a v8 and at this point in his life or in the in the history of the world nobody had ever had a v8 it was something that he came up with and his team of experts and scientists had been trying to create a B8, and they said it was impossible. It couldn't be made. Uh, and they had been trying for a couple of years. And finally, Henry Ford said, if you guys cannot create the V8, I will fire you and find somebody else that can. <laughs> Voila, they came up with a V8. <laughs> 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 you 
but you know, it's. It, it, but again, uh, this is, I think, what keeps some people stuck, right? I mean, there there is a time when you have to innovate and move forward and go through the pain, and then there's a time where you got to say, hey, this is the wrong way. This is not going to work. And yep. Yep. I don't think there's a clear method for that is there there's not other than trial and error yeah i don't you know i don't know of anything other than uh when you keep trying and uh it's not working it's not working it's not working it's not working and 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 to me when you've run out of any idea and you've exhausted every possibility and every possible avenue and every possible alternative and it's still not working that's usually about when i give up but that's you know not until like 15 tries yeah, absolutely. So, so okay, because I want to talk about this because this is one of the, your areas that you that you deal with all the time. I mean, you yep. you know uh, you talk, you help people innovate. Uh, right now, you've been doing a lot, and uh, with uh, in fact, uh, this is uh, your your latest book is uh, about innovation and and getting companies that are stuck in the rust belt um, and, and uh, transforming them into high tech. So. Uh, let's talk about this. Um, are you seeing a lot of companies that are stuck in the Rust Belt, <clears throat> excuse me, um, kind of uh, apprehensive about changing? Oh, sure. In fact, uh, when I when I you know make uh, keynote speeches about this, I don't go into the high tech crowd. I go into the Rust Belt crowd, uh, knowing full well that uh, most of them will be like deer in the headlights, and they'll look at me when I'm going through this thing. You know, the why you should do it. And, how you can do it and all that kind of stuff, and they just go to like, well, I'll give you a perfect example. Later on this month, I'll be uh, keynoting the Fastener Fair in uh, Detroit. And if there's any such thing as a stuck in the mud, and I don't mean to insult them at all because they're good staple industries, if there, if there is such a thing as a stuck in the mud, dyed in the wool, rust belt, you know, uh, non-innovative, non-high technology industry, it sure is the fastening industry and uh, when I when I get in front of these crowds I say you know here's here's why you have to do this I have to convince them of that first otherwise they won't listen to anything else I have to say and so you could see whole industries uh, that are you know low on the lower side or no technology at all that uh, that are getting by on you know smaller and smaller margins because costs go up every year you know, if, uh, if, uh, offshore competition comes in every year, gets more, you know, uh, saturated. And so, you know, and I, what I try to do, Bert, is to get them to think about, okay, now where is this going? Look at your business today and look at your margins today and look at them last year and look at them the year before, and I guarantee they're going down by X percent. I don't know what that percent is. It'll vary, you know, in the company and the competition. Sure. And then I go, okay, now, you know, <laughs> multiply that times X. Tell me what your break-even is, and then tell me when you go out of business. And it's it's really a simple formula, uh, uh, but most people don't want to do it because they, they if they if they conclude they're going to go out of business unless they do something really dramatic, now they're really screwed because <laughs> they don't know what to do dramatic, and if they did, they couldn't convince their stakeholders that they should. Yeah. Well, and, and here's what's interesting. This is uh, what is fascinating about humans, uh, and this goes back to if, if anybody's heard the the saying, a man or woman uh, uh, 
convinced against their will is of, of the same opinion still, meaning facts don't matter. Yeah. If they believe that uh, that uh, you know changing is is going to hurt them, they're not going to change. It, conversely, if they think change is going to save them, they will change immediately. So, but but here's yep. the deal. This is what I want to talk about. You look at somebody like Kodak. At one point, Kodak owned all of the patents for digital photography. They owned them all. Yep. They never used them until they started, and, and all of a sudden the patents start to expire, and they were left in the dust. So here's a company that just refused. I mean, talk about being stuck in the rust belt. They refused to change, and uh, I think they're still in business, but barely, right? Uh, they're still a film company, and, and their story was, I'm a, we're a film company, and this digital stuff is not us. And, and right. you know, they could have started licensing it. They could have done so oh, much. Yeah. And, and it's just amazing to me that a group of intelligent people just sat there and said, you know, the best thing we could do with these, these assets is nothing. Sure. I, it just <laughs> – it just blows me away, Stephen. That's, that's, I think it's called confirmation bias or some yes. psychological term for it, you know. And then I'm sure they were sitting around saying, yeah, but then we're going to cannibalize our own products, you know, because uh, digital and all that. And, and you're always better off cannibalizing your own own products as opposed to somebody else doing it. Right, right, absolutely. And, and that's why uh, a great example of that, ladies and gentlemen, is the soda industry. You have Coke, Diet Coke. Uh, Coke now has like a hundred different flavors. Uh, you know, th there's, you know, so does Pepsi. But you know, bottom line is these are great example to me of of, of self cannibalization, and also you know Coke has water products, and I think they also own Smart Water and yep. and some sugary juices and stuff like that. Mm, meaning yep. they have line extensions, but. So, but anyway, real quick, I want to plug the book. The book is called Metamorphosis, which I love. I love this name, Metamorphosis, from Rust Belt to High Tech in the 21st Century World. So, let me ask you this: Why write this book, Metamorphosis? Well, you know, uh, I my I took my own company through it, so I, I have firsthand experience at it. It's not from an academic point of view or, or a uh, research point of view. And the uh, the awakening that I had, or the epiphany that I had, um, I, and once on one hand, Bert, I'm lucky because I've always been a forward thinker, and I've always been, you know, let's cannibalize our own products kind of guy. So that that helps me uh, see the problems before they come up. But I, I I could see in my own company what you just talked about: patents were expiring, uh, offshore competition was coming in, margins were eroding, and I could have done what a lot of CEOs do. Maybe I should say a lot. Some CEOs do. I could have said, eh, you know, boy, that'd be really tough to change that. And let me just see if I can get to retirement. And that's what they do. Uh, and what what happens uh, is CEOs don't want to go to their boards and tell them uh, that there's big trouble coming if we don't make big, risky, expensive changes, because that's not what boards want to hear. Boards want to hear everything is okay and everything is going to be okay. So therefore, they don't do it. But I did, and so I wanted to, and I looked around at the Rust Belt uh, Industries, if you will. I looked around and said, you know, everybody ought to be doing this if we want to save American manufacturing uh, and we want it to thrive and, and be, you know, a, a economic uh, of, of economic benefit to the country in the future. And that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's it's amazing to me how many people, and again, this is just the human condition. We're, we're all, we all do this. Uh, we start to see the writing on the wall, and then we just, we deny it. We deny it. Yeah. And, and yeah. until the point that uh, uh, it's, you know, too late, and somebody comes along and, 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 and eats you up, and um, what do you call it? Uh, I, I I bet you, you know, uh, another company, Sony. Sony at one point had most of the market share uh, when it came to uh, uh, MP3 players. Yep. And comes along with this little no-name company called Apple, mm-hmm. and 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 they knew how to market it. You know, it, it's not an MP3 player because you know that's to me it's such a technical name. It's it's a thousand songs in your pocket. Oh, I get that. I get yep. I get a thousand songs in my pocket. Yep. You know, but what's an MP3 player? That sounds technical. That sounds confusing. Anyway, so they 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 could they didn't do it well, and, and so they lost their lunch. And uh, this is a what do you call it? A constant thing. So so let me ask you this: um, when you are uh, let's say dealing with a company or or consulting with a company, what are the major phases of the transformation, which are the most difficult? Uh, That's a really good question. Um, I would say the uh, somewhere between, you know, there's three phases to it: transform, you know, the organization from what it is to what it needs to be. And, you know, you look at most uh, Rust Belt organizations and this is not a uh, criticism or an insult to people, but Rust Belt organizations are typically low, low creativity, low energy, low commitment, and that doesn't work in a high-tech world. So you have to – what you need in a high-tech world is exactly the opposite, high, high energy, high creativity, and, and high, high commitment. So you have to transform the organization from what it is to what it needs to be, and that is really, really tough stuff because uh, you'll have all kinds of, uh, of uh, resistance, and that will start with your board – if you don't communicate clearly and get your board uh, along with the program. And many of the employees that uh, have done what they've always done for forever uh, don't want to change. They'll be uh, afraid of the change and threatened by the change. And so, you know, your your whole effort could get eaten. You could get eaten alive before you ever get out of that transformation phase. I mean, most people who try to change organizations or societies or whatever usually get crucified. And uh, and I would say that's probably the hardest part. It, it, once you get through that, then you move into the igniting the innovation phase, which is, is not easy. But at that point in time, you've got an organization that's been transformed and that's uh, eager and willing and uh, kind of chomping at the bit, if you will, Bert, to uh, get on with these uh, innovation uh, processes. And then the third phase, of course, is now, now that you've got all these cool new products and the transformed organizations, of course, I'm simplifying here. Now you get to disrupt the market, and that's um, that's really the easiest part. And, and for me, that that's the funnest part because uh, I tell people when I do keynote speeches, I go, okay, so let me give you the technical definition of disrupting the market. It's when you come at your competition like a bat out of hell and you knock them on their keister and they never get back up. <laughs> and then I say, okay, if you want a little more elegant, I'll give you a little more elegant definition about, you know, highly – uh, unpredictable, highly unorthodox, and highly unexpected marketing uh, uh, programs, 
And so that's sort of the fun part when, you know, you're in a stodgy old industry that's done, you know, gone to market the same way for 100 years. You got your uh, four-color ads and the trade publications that don't say anything about how great you are except you're the best. And you got trade shows where, you know, nobody comes into your booth because they're only there so their wives can have a little junket and they can play golf with their buddies. And when you shake that all up on its end, you do things that are really dramatically different. It's just really, it's, it's, it's highly effective and it's also a lot of fun. Sure. Yeah. So, and one of the things that, you know, that we all have to deal with and what makes change so hard on this level anyway is sometimes you have to fire people because Absolutely. it's it's a mindset everything is a mindset yep. uh and, and so people who want to change is a mindset and what's so funny to me steven is that people will get fired because they couldn't change at a job that they had and they loved and they they're they're so stuck in their ways like you said oh this is the way we're always doing it this guy this consultant Stephen Blue is messing with me he's messing with my department he's tearing apart my company blah 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 so that person ends up getting fired uh, or you know they give them a package whatever you want to call it they, they, they that person is get fired is, is it and then they will go and start a new career doing something completely different at a new company because now they've had like a mindset enema. They've had a mindset wipe and they go, oh, oh, okay, I have to change the way I'm thinking. I couldn't do it where I was at, so now, now I'm forced to go someplace else. And, yeah, and that's yeah. just the reality of, of humans. That's the way we think. They don't, but they don't see that until they're forced into it and, uh, and they have no choice. And you're right. When you're doing one of these transformations, there will be people that are going to get fired. Now, don't misunderstand me. You give every, you give them uh, uh, reasonable chances, and I, and I don't, I don't mean you give them uh, one, two, three, four tries before they're out because the market doesn't wait around for your people to get their act together. But you give them, you know, you tell them, you explain it to them, you uh, train them, you help them understand the rationale, you support them, or you reinforce them. Then if they don't want to come along with the program, and some won't. Uh, right, because uh, they just won't, <clears throat> and and and, I, and I'll, I'll never know why, and I don't need to know why. But if you don't cut those people out in the middle of a transformation, uh, uh, then other people will see this as as, as a joke, and as another, you know, the uh, corporate uh, initiative du jour, and uh, they won't take it seriously. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and 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 um, oh dang it, I. Uh, this happened, uh, you know, and, and I, I don't know, it's been going on for a long time, but I remember many, many years ago, when I say many years ago, I want to say a couple of decades, where this transparency management kind of came into play. Mm -hmm. And this is where CEOs would sit there and share the numbers with, the, uh, with everybody in the company. Yeah. Guys, you know, we're on track. Life is great. Guys, we're in trouble. If we don't make some rapid changes, we're going to be, you know, we're, we're going to go into bankruptcy or we're going to have to start laying people off, blah, blah, blah. And I'm a big proponent of this. I think that, you know, everything comes down to mindset, but part of that mindset is the why. And if you have a big enough why, then you can create a big enough drive. 
And I think to me, and I want to get your opinion on this, I think if you are facing massive change, you got to explain it to your to your team why there's a massive change. And don't be afraid to be transparent and show the numbers. Show how bad it is and, and show, listen, this is why we're changing because we have to get over, you know, we have to get over here. What's your thought on being transparent and, and just getting real with people? Oh, I agree. Absolutely. hundred, 110%. I, uh, we, we, as a, as a matter of custom and as a matter of, uh, operating procedure in my company, we showed people the numbers, uh, every month. And if, in fact, every day, everybody in the place sees well, what the order intake was and, and people generally know, you know, about what it needs to be and what the budget is and, and all that. But imagine this, <clears throat> if you, Let's say you, you know, there's two two views in this, as you know. One is the paternalistic view of I want to protect my employees and they can't deal with, you know, reality and they'll, you know, get upset or they'll quit or they'll get discouraged or whatever. And the other is the viewpoint that you and I both uh, uh, espouse, which is, you know, the, the realistic what's happening today point of view. But imagine this. Imagine that, you know, your numbers are starting to get soft, your numbers are starting to get soft, and, and, you, and you're whistling a happy tune for your employees, and they're going along fat, dumb, and happy, and they think everything's fine because that's what you want them to think. And all of a sudden, you run into this situation where now i got to take dramatic action. i got to have a big layoff, and, uh, you know, it's all hands on deck. And then people look, look at you, and they go, and, and this is legitimate, but they say, why, if you would have told me that we were going to be in this much trouble if we didn't make change, I'd have been happy to help you out. But you didn't <laughs> tell me. Now it's too late. Yeah. You know, you have no, some but... employees who wouldn't, but, uh, you know, you shouldn't. those employees should have been gone already. I mean, you know, first time you uh, think that maybe you have an employee that you shouldn't have anymore, that's when you ought to fire him. And there's plenty of them out there. I mean, you know. What, what I run into all the time when I when I consult with companies and CEOs, uh, they say, well, you know, I've got some employees that, you know, they, they're really not that, you know, they're okay, I guess they're C players. And I go, why, why are they still around? I mean, you, it's your comp- if your competition's a C, okay, maybe you can get away with that. But in today's world, competition uh, is usually a, an A or a B, and so why do you allow your employees to stay around as a C? And they go, oh, I don't know. Human resources tells me I can't. You know, I got a labor union. You got all this stuff, and it's just all excuses for lack of action. Well, and I think it's an excuse to avoid the pain because it is yeah. awful. It's terrible yeah. to have to fire people. It is. It's just you know, it, it, it's never the right time. It's either their birthday or their anniversary, or it's, you know, it's. <laughs> It's a holiday or this or that. It's, there's never a right time. That's true. That's absolutely and, true. And, and there's just no, you know, there's just no way to do it. Now, I have done this for some of my clients, and that is, you become the hatchet. If you don't have, for lack of better terms, the courage, the cojones to fire. Your C players, your D players, your bad apples, whatever you want to call them, people that aren't performing, man, do yourself a favor. Hire somebody to come in and just let them go. And it may cost you a couple hundred bucks. That's it. Yep. And, and you know, it's totally worth it. And you're still going to have some people that are going to be upset with you, 
But, man, you got to pull that Band-Aid off. you just got to do it. And the, the sooner you do that, the better it is, not only for you but for them because they know they're Absolutely. C players. They're unhappy. They're not, you know, they're not C players because they're happy and they love their job. They're C players because they're, they, they've kind of, you know, they're, they're going through the motions, right? Yep, yep. And, and the A players – I've been looking around. Here's what I found. Yeah, when when you fire somebody, most if you, if you did the right thing, you made the right choice, and all that, most people applaud that. They may not, you know, just jump up and down and uh, cheer, but most people, the A players, look at that and go, "It's about time they got rid of this guy. He's not pulling yeah. his weight, and, and and when he's not pulling his weight, he's affecting my ability to be successful and, and the company's ability to thrive and, and prosper." Absolutely. And and you know what? Here's here's the other thing that I've noticed. When you get rid of some of these low performers, the uh the reality is that most people won't even notice they're gone. They make yeah, such right. a small impact that you're going, yep. Wow. You know, yep. I mean, they're just not producing enough and so therefore they don't uh it doesn't require a whole lot to fill their hole for lack of better terms. And it's just amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, no one misses them. Yeah, nobody misses them. And, and, and so I bet you your average Rust Belt company, 10% of their workforce is exactly like that. Yeah, think about that, 10%. That's a huge – now, yeah. just so we're clear, when you say a Rust Belt company, and, and you know what, I, I want to plug the book one more time here because we're getting close on time. Um, it's called Metamorphosis. And where's my link? Metamorphosis from Rust Belt to high tech in the 21st century world. Um, so when you when you think of a company that's a Rust Belt company, what are you thinking? Well, uh, that's a good question. Anything that's not uh, technology driven, really. Uh, uh, injection molding companies, fastener companies, uh, metal bending companies, uh you know, um, uh, machining companies that do secondary operations on, on uh, you know, sheet metal and things like that. Uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I pretty much confine myself to manufacturing. I mean, there's a lot of uh, companies outside of manufacturing that would probably qualify as, as that. But that's basically what I mean by a Rust Belt. And that's, you know, that's a big chunk of uh, American manufacturing. I bet it's 40%. Yeah. And... When you look at these companies that leave the U.S. and they go and they, you know, they they take their company overseas, uh, sometimes that's done because of the, you know, stagnation that has affected their company. Yep. Uh, it becomes a virus. You also mentioned unions, and I'll give you a, a really good example. I'm not going to name any names, but there was a major, a major employer in New York, and they were struggling. Uh, they hadn't made profit in like two years, and they had gone to the unions and said, "Hey, we need to get a pay cut, or we're going to close this. We're going to close the company and move someplace else." Yep. They could not get any cooperation. From the unions. They couldn't get cooperations. Yeah. And and so what they ended up doing, they ended up letting go a thousand people because they could not get cooperation. And they ended up moving to uh, a different city in the U.S. 
and basically, you know, call it a, 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 you know, a personnel enema, if you will, but also a mindset enema. I mean, if, if, if you're working in an area and you're being strangled by the unions, and again, look, I'm, I'm really, I am pro-union to a point, but the problem with, with unions is a lot of them become big and powerful and they get greedy and sloppy and they no longer yeah. are trying to, you know, they're no longer being effective. And so workers uh, have to be protected. I mean, we've seen the great work that unions have done with like truck drivers and, and safety and all this other stuff. So unions have a place, but well, bottom you line know, is you can't kill the golden goose to save the union. Go ahead. No, no. You know what? I, and I'm neutral on unions. I've, I've worked with them. I've worked without them. I prefer to work without them. Uh, but I'll say this about unions. Uh, when uh, If you're a union-free shop and you get a union, then you, you, you were doing something horribly wrong as a leadership team. Otherwise, yes. that could never happen. And, I agree. And typically, people uh, get the kind of unions they deserve uh, when when they behave like that. And uh, but uh, but and I've been there where you know bet the company kind of negotiations where they just wouldn't uh, uh, wouldn't allow me to do anything, and I've been in a few situations where you know same thing, big hammer out there. You know you got to convince them that you're serious about this because if they think it's just another ploy to get uh, uh, wages down. Uh, if you, they think you're just crying wolf, they'll they'll never go along with it. I think that's probably the key, but. Uh, it's just Absolutely. silly what sometimes union and, and and management does too. Absolutely. Look, I, I, and I'm with you. I much rather work without a union. I think most companies would rather work without a union uh, because uh, they do hamper creativity and flexibility and agility. And I love what you said there. If a union comes in, uh, then you've done a bad job as a leader. And when I say yeah. a bad job as a leader, I want to make sure I'm clear. I'm clear on this. If people uh, feel as though they're heard and they're cared for, then you'll never need a union. Uh, That's right. But if, if, but if people feel as though they're being ignored and they're powerless, then you will get a union. Eventually, you will have yep. something yep. like that. That's uh, exactly so, right. People, people don't vote for unions; they vote against management. That's it. That's a great, great uh, adage there, uh, Stephen. We're out of time, but I want to uh, mention the book one more time for those who are maybe stuck in the rust belt, maybe mentally uh, or physically. Uh, Metamorphosis from rust belt to high tech in the 21st century world, uh, 21st century world, the author, Stephen Blue, uh, Stephen L. Blue. And um, uh, Stephen, what is the best website to get a hold of you? Somebody wanted to track you down and maybe pick your brain, maybe t- uh, talk to you about either being a speaker or a consultant. Yeah, uh, probably the best one would be StephenLBlue.com, S-T-E-V-E-N-L-B-L-U-E.com. I love it. Stephen Blue, thank you so much for stopping by. It's always fun, my friend. Yep. I uh, appreciate the conversation. It's good to talk to you, Bert. Absolutely. Good stuff there from Stephen L. Blue, best-selling author. The book, again, is Metamorphosis, From Rust Belt to High Tech in the 21st Century World. Uh, and you know what? You may not be in manufacturing, but are you stuck? Do you have a rust belt mentality, mindset? Uh, you know, it's uh, you know we we mentioned companies like Kodak, which weren't in manufacturing per se, 
there are a lot of companies out there. And uh, so just because, what do you call it, uh, you're, you're sailing along uh, doesn't mean that uh, you may not have to start thinking about change. And uh, anyway, my friends, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate the support. Please share this episode with everyone that you want to succeed. Remember, you were created to succeed. Tune in Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch. And check out our website at moneyforlunch.com.